The scripture reading from this evening comes from Mark chapter 15, verse 40 through chapter 16, verse 8. This is God's word. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. He said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. So we come to the very end of Mark's gospel. And I thought I would tell you, as this will be our last week in this book, what we will be doing next. Uh, Next week we'll actually, uh, Alton Hardy who is a pastor here in Birmingham at uh, Urban Hope uh, Church just west of the city. He'll be here to preach, and um, he's a good, a good friend, and I'm really excited that he's going to be able to be here. And then after that, we're going to spend four weeks looking at what we at Red Mountain call our four words, worship, grace, community, and place, as a way to renew our sense of vision, our sense of values, and things that, that really matter to us as a church. And we're going to spend four weeks doing that. But Tonight, we come to the end of Mark's gospel and Jesus, his burial and his resurrection from the dead. And arguably, I think one of the most interesting pieces or parts of this passage uh, is the very end of it. And in two basic ways, if you, uh, one of the things, if you don't have an English Bible with you tonight, this might not occur to you right away, but if you do have a Bible with you and you look at verse 8, and just after that, almost all English Bibles will say something like this. 
Some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 16.9 through 20. And I'm not going to bore you with a whole field of study called textual criticism that would help to sort of explain why that's there. But basically, what that's saying is, given the evidence that we have for the New Testament, which is enormous, thousands of manuscripts, very early dates, when you look at all of those, the earliest and the best manuscripts don't have verses 9 through 20. And for that reason, almost all commentators and and Bible scholars, with some exceptions, but most, believe that Mark's gospel ends at verse 8. Now, that might not strike you as um, all that significant until you compare Mark's gospel with the other three. Mark's gospel ends in a rather dramatic and abrupt way, as we'll see. There are the three, these three women who are there at the tomb and they've gone to anoint Jesus and instead he's not there. And they meet what Mark calls a young man and the other gospel writers call an angel who tells them Jesus is gone. He's, he's, he's alive. He's risen. And they leave, according to Mark, terrified, astonished. And that's where it ends. What are we supposed to do with that? Why does Mark's gospel end that way? And it's it's particularly important to notice that because Jesus, three times in this gospel, once in chapter 8, once in chapter 9, once in chapter 10, tells his disciples that he would suffer and die and rise again on the third day. So why does Mark end his gospel the way that he does? The reason he, I believe, that he ends the gospel the way that he does is to show that no one expected it. No one expected Jesus to rise from the dead. Despite all the times that he would have said, I'm going to suffer and die, and I will rise again on the third day. Now, What this means is, and this is significant for us who live in the 21st century, it was just as difficult or even as impossible for folks in the first century, even Jesus' disciples, to believe in the resurrection as it is for many of us today. This is not a modern problem. Believing the supernatural claims and events of the Christian faith was just as hard for folks back then to believe as it is for many of us today. And in fact, the response of these women that we see here, we see the same response throughout Mark's gospel when men and women are faced with the power of God, or as Mark calls it, the kingdom of God. And they don't even know how to react, except in fear and awe and even trembling and One of the best examples of this is when, back in Mark chapter 9, when Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, and they go up on the mountain, and it's the story of the transfiguration of Jesus. And all of a sudden, Moses and Elijah appear with Jesus. And Peter, in one of his typical moments, in the midst of this, he says to Jesus, well, let's let's build three tents. 
one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Nobody knows what that means. All the commentators, have, they have good you know, things they'll say, but Peter has no idea what's happening. He has no idea how to react. And in fact, Mark even says, the reason that Peter says this is he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Again and again, when faced with the power of God, Men and women don't know how to react. And we see it here at the very end of the story. And so the question I want us to wrestle with tonight is, given the way that Mark's gospel ends, what does it give us that can move us from fear and doubt to faith and joy in Jesus? I want to look at this passage to see what, is, what are we given that can move us from fear and doubt to faith and joy in Jesus Christ? And I want us to look at First of all, an authentic witness. This passage shows us that Mark's account is an authentic, reliable account. We're also going to see the courage that we need to stand with Jesus, no matter what. And then we'll finish by looking at what it has to teach us about the meaning of the resurrection. So first, let's look at the idea that Mark's account here is reliable and it's authentic. If you notice, in verse 40 and 41, we, uh, we learn about three women. We learn about Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph, and Salome. Now, we also learn that in verse 41 that these three were a part of a much larger group of women who were followers of Jesus throughout his entire ministry in Galilee, and they came with him to Jerusalem. And the irony here is you don't really hear about these followers of Jesus until now, especially when the 12, those that Jesus appointed to be his apostles, are nowhere to be found. They've all fled They've all abandoned Jesus. And here we have these three women. In particular, these women are mentioned three times in this passage. And it's worth asking, why does Mark mention these three out of this group? And the only good explanation is that these three were probably known to Mark's readers. Which meant they they function almost like footnotes or citations You could go and ask them about their story, about what they saw, and what did they see. The reason that Mark mentions them three times is that they are witnesses to, first of all, the death of Jesus in verse 40 and 41. Then we discover in verse 47 that they are witnesses to where Jesus is buried. And then in verses 1 through 8, they are witnesses to the empty tomb. Now, this is Mark's way of trying to show us he's writing an authentic account. However, there is a problem. Because in, the first, in, in first century Palestine, a woman's testimony was not allowed in court. It was inadmissible in court. And therefore, their witness to these events, to the death and the burial and the empty tomb, would have been dismissed. They had no standing. It would not have been believed. 
And therefore, on the surface of it, it seems like it would deeply undermine the credibility of Mark's story, unless this is how it actually happened. And Mark, so concerned to write the, the account of Jesus' life and death and resurrection as it happened, regardless of the outcome or how it would be perceived, wrote how it happened. Because, in fact, if you were trying to, and this is an argument against Benny today who would say, you know, the Gospels really aren't reliable. They were written so far after the events of which they record. This, these are made up by the church for their, the church's agenda. It was really a power play. Well, if that's what you were doing, if you were making up a story to get people to believe you in the first century, this is not how you would do it. You would not make these most significant events of Jesus' life depend on the witnesses of women in the first century. Now, that, some of us, that might sound really foreign. But you just simply wouldn't write it this way. And the only good explanation is that Mark is giving us an authentic account of what happened. Now, not only that, not only does he give them the prominence and importance in this story because it makes his account authentic. It also illustrates how the gospel turns the values of the world upside down. This is not how the world would do things. And yet, again and again, what do we see in the story of of Mark's gospel is Jesus moving towards the least and the lowest, celebrating those no one else would celebrate. Perhaps one of the best examples of that is earlier in chapter 14 when Jesus is anointed by a woman during a meal and she receives the highest praise of anyone in the gospel. He says, what she has done for me is a beautiful thing. And wherever the good news about me is preached, this story is going to be told. So not only does Mark give us an authentic witness here, and he makes claims that uh, to a a reliable account that these things really did happen, then Jesus Christ is the Son of God raised from the dead. No sooner is that the case than that you will actually, if you begin to embrace that, no, no sooner than that will you then have to begin to think about what does it mean to actually side with Jesus? If this is really true, and these claims about who Jesus is really are true about him, you can't just ignore them. You have to make some kind of decision about them. And what we see here as we come to the courage to side with Jesus, we see This man Joseph in verse 42 to 46. In verse 42 to 46, Joseph, he's from a city called Arimathea, and he is described as a respected member of the council. Now, that council is the Sanhedrin, which we, if you've been tracking in recent weeks, this is the highest governing body in Jewish faith. And he is a well-respected member of that council. And, and however, even though he's a member of it, we learn from John chapter 19 
that he was actually a disciple of Jesus, though he was secretly out of fear of the Jews. And it's at this point, this is the first time we hear about Joseph. It's after Jesus has been crucified and he has died. And the death of Jesus marks a turning point in this man's life. And in fact, Mark here describes him as one who is looking for the kingdom of God. And throughout Mark's gospel, Jesus, his coming, and the kingdom of God are essentially one. That if you want to know where does God's power, where is that located? Where do I look to see the power of God? Mark's answer is, you look at Jesus. And in the death of Jesus, Joseph sees something. What did he see? I think what we are bound to conclude is that he saw in Jesus the coming of God's kingdom. In the Son of God. There's really no other explanation for his courageous request for the body of Jesus. Because he had nothing to gain and he had everything to lose. Think about this for a moment. Why would a prestigious, well-known, well-respected religious ruler, after Jesus, a condemned criminal by the Romans, a condemned blasphemer by the Jews, why would he go and ask for this man's body if he did not begin to see that in Jesus, the very same thing that the centurion saw, that he truly is the Son of God? You see, it took a great deal of courage, if you think about it, for Joseph to go to Pilate to ask for his body. Pilate condemned Jesus as a political enemy of Rome. It took courage for him to, as a member of the Sanhedrin, to confess his commitment to this condemned and crucified rabbi. Imagine for a moment what Joseph's Sanhedrin buddies must have thought about Joseph. What a waste. Why, how could you throw your life away for this blasphemer, this crucified criminal? Now Joseph is politically suspect. He's religiously an outcast. He has aligned himself with a crucified, dead, so-called king of the Jews. Now think about this for a moment. What does it mean for you to stand with Jesus? Here, we see this man who's successful, he's well-known, he's certainly probably wealthy, he has his own tomb. He has everything to lose, nothing to gain. Here he is, aligning with this man. Have you ever had that experience? Whether in a friendship or in a work situation or an academic situation where perhaps someone finds out that maybe you go to church or maybe they find out that you believe in Jesus and think, what a, really? I didn't think you were that kind of person. I thought you were smarter than that. I thought you maybe were more resourceful than that. Why would you think 
that you could not have a fulfilled and happy life pursuing what you love and what you're good at and what you would like to excel at. Well, that's right where Joseph finds himself. And as we come to the end of Mark's gospel, the courage of Joseph that we see here, it serves as a challenge to each of us. Mark has walked us through his ministry. He's walked us through the events that led up to his trial and his crucifixion. And here we come face to face with his resurrection. And the question that Mark is leading every one of us to have to ask is, where do you stand with Jesus? Who do you say that Jesus really is? What do you see in this man's life and his death and his resurrection? Do you see a mere man or do you see the Son of God? Do you see a mere man or do you see the Son of God who gave his life as a ransom for sinners? And he is worth losing everything in order to follow after him. You know, that's a pretty heavy thing to absorb. I don't have that kind of courage. And I suppose I'm supposed to. I'm a pastor. (laughs) I suspect many of you have been in situations where you have not. If you are a follower of Jesus, you have not been courageous. You've not stood with Jesus. And what I want to show you is that this passage is for people just like that. As we come to our third point here about the meaning of the resurrection, if you think about, as we noticed at the beginning tonight, that believing the good news of the resurrection was as hard for these women as it, as it is for many of us. However, in the midst of their alarm, as these women encounter the empty tomb and their fear begins to bubble over, we also find the meaning of this resurrection, which is really able to turn our fear and our doubt into faith and joy. So let's look at that. The meaning of this resurrection here in verse, in chapter 16, I'm going to focus in on verses 6 and 7. So Joseph has taken Jesus down from the cross. He's taken him to a tomb. He's laid him in the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. And then in verse 1 of chapter 16, after the Sabbath was passed, these women go to the tomb to anoint Jesus. And all they have on their mind is death. Jesus is dead. It's over. There's grief, there's sadness, there's dejection, there's disappointment. And then they come to verse 5 or verse 4. They see that this enormous stone that had been rolled in front of this tomb has been rolled back. And they walk into the tomb. And they see a young man sitting there. And the words that he gives to them are also for us the meaning of the resurrection. What do we see here? I want you to see that what we have here is a new beginning. 
We have grace for failures, and we have a guarantee of better things yet to come. Look in verse 6. As the women are there and they're alarmed, verse 6, it says, He said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. See, his words here to these women about Jesus' resurrection, they span the time from his crucifixion to his resurrection. The the person that these women knew on the way to the cross is the same Jesus that they know now, though we have yet to see him. These verses are meant to show you that Jesus really was bodily dead, And bodily raised. This is the beginning of, if you will, what Paul calls elsewhere a new creation. It is the beginning of the end of death. It's the beginning of the end of everything that is not as it should be. And therefore, Jesus' resurrection is the beginning, it elsewhere is referred to as the first fruits of what everyone who trusts in him looks forward to when Jesus comes back in the end of history to make everything right again. But these women here, as I'm sure any of us would be, were consumed with this idea of death. And yet, Jesus has come. In John chapter 10, we are told that Jesus has come that we may have life and have it abundantly. I don't know about you, maybe you are overwhelmed by the breakdown and disintegration of your life, which are really just evidences of death. Or maybe you're overwhelmed by circumstances and events in our city or our country or our world, and you wonder, is this how it's always going to be, or will it ever be any different? You see, the resurrection of Jesus tells you Those things will not always be that way. God has acted, but not only on a grand scale does this mark a new beginning, it also spells the end of guilt and shame for all who trust in Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus spells the end of guilt and shame. What it means is you no longer have to bear it alone. He has come to bear it for you. Which brings us to grace for failures. Look in verse 7. After telling the women that Jesus is alive, he's not here, look and see where they laid him. He's not here anymore. He says, go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. Now you have to stop and think for a moment. We haven't heard or seen the disciples since the night that Jesus was betrayed. And we haven't heard from Peter, except on that same night during the trial of Jesus, when he was asked, do you know this Jesus? And he denies him three times. But the very first thing, after Jesus is raised from the dead, that we hear that the resurrection means he has not abandoned those who fail him, though they 
have abandoned him. There is grace and mercy for failures. That's what the resurrection means. See, the the last word here for Peter is not, I have no idea who he is. The last word here for Peter and for the disciples and for you and me is, I am going before you. I will see you again. You see, this is really good news. Jesus has come to restore sinners. And the reality is, every one of us fall into this same group with the disciples and with Peter. They were proud. They were overconfident. They thought they knew what was happening. And in the end, they had no idea. And their pride and their confidence shows them as having not really understood at all. And yet Jesus says, I will go before you. What we see in verse 7 is actually almost a quote of what Jesus promised them back in chapter 14, verse 26. Right in the middle of the section where Jesus says, you all will abandon me. And they say, no, we won't. And right in the middle of that section, Jesus says, I will go before you. I will meet you again in Galilee. Not only is the resurrection, does it mean that there is grace for failures, but it also is a guarantee of better things yet to come. Notice here in the second part there of verse 7 where it says, there you will see him just as he told you. What is the good news about Christianity? Is it that there's forgiveness? Yes. Is it that you are given a righteousness that's not your own? Yes. But it's even more than that. The good news about Christianity is that you were told that by grace and through faith, you will see Jesus face to face. You have the same promise that we read here. You have the same promise that acknowledges that you are not yet what you will be. Listen to how the Apostle John in 1 John writes this. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Here, these women receive these words of promise, of assurance, of guarantee, of hope, of confidence that Jesus is going before you. You will see him again. And you and I have that same promise too. That's what the resurrection means. It means that we will see him again, face to face. And what grace means is there is nothing about you if you side with Jesus, if you forsake trust in yourself and put all of your weight on him, there is nothing that will keep you from that day when you will be like him because you will see him as he really is. So far from being a story of wishful thinking, this gospel, Mark's gospel, a story of wishful thinking or spiritual platitudes 
This story ends with really the only honest reaction to this good news about Jesus Christ. It's an honest reaction of awe, of wonder, of trembling, of astonishment, of question of what does it all mean? And what has Mark been doing? He's been leading us through his account of Jesus to help us to see that there's really only one answer. That Jesus is the Son of God raised from the dead so that by grace through faith in him, you and I might have courage to follow him, knowing that he goes before you. And you will see him again face to face. Let's pray. Father in heaven, give you thanks for this book and this final passage that confronts us with this astounding series of events of Jesus' crucifixion and his burial and the empty tomb and these words of hope and promise that you will keep your word, that you will go before your disciples, your followers, that you will show yourself to us. While you did that for them in, in the body, in the flesh, you do it now for us through your word. Thank you for this gift, and we pray that you would give us eyes and ears and hearts to lay hold of you by faith. For it's in your name that we pray. Amen.